I love how demanding consumers are. The second they're not being entertained, they're out the door. Even if they've already bought the course, you have to sell them each lesson. Lesson one, you, you pitch them and sell them on taking lesson two. That way, all the way through the whole course. <laughs> What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, the YouTube Roast Bastard, a.k.a. Rabbi Canlose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Tiago Forte, who is a productivity consultant and the creator of Building a Second Brain course. You can check it out at buildingasecondbrain.com. I wasn't really expecting this conversation to be so amazing, but it is. And if you've ever wanted to learn about creating an online course, understand the psychology of high-ticket pricing, and how to build a strong brand in a really crowded marketplace, you're going to love this episode. We cover three gigantic things. Number one, behind the scenes of his high-ticket course and how you can start your own. Number two, Thiago's anger management technique. It includes using gloves and a tennis racket. And number three, how to shoot a whole documentary on your iPhone. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you are subscribed to my YouTube channel. Yes, youtube.com slash okdork. We are going to be giving out a Tesla, my very own Tesla with autopilot and full self-driving. Subscribe to youtube.com slash okdork so you can find out how to win in the upcoming weeks. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Fat Bubble from the United Kingdom. He says, always look forward to my run with Noah and guest along. Thanks, bro. Thank you, sir. Uh, and if you want a shout out in a future episode, leave a review online. I check every single one of them. I love every single one of you. How are you doing, man? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. We're, we're mid-launch of our course, which we only do twice a year. So the whole team is kind of pulling their hair out and running around like like crazy people, but it's also what we enjoy and, and love. So it's the best of both worlds, as, as you know. <laughs> do you get nervous or is there a lot of stress or anxiety? I don't get nervous anymore, really. We're This is the 11th time we've done this, the 11th course launch. It's more just yeah, is there some critical detail that is falling through the cracks that we don't even know about that we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and have hundreds of emails about? <laughs> I guess, how have you iterated on them on the 11th? How's the 11th different than the first? You know, we treat the course like a software program. We have versions. So we have release notes. Like every semester, basically every six months, we come out with a whole list of version notes. All the things we're changing, the new content, the changed content, we release new features, new kinds of calls, new kinds of support. It's really like this, like the software, software program. Uh, and then we run a whole cohort, we call them. Like we take a group of people through the new version of the course. Uh, and it's changed radically. It's unrecognizable from the first one. <laughs> How much was it for the first cohort? The first one was 500 bucks. Okay. And today? The two tiers are 1500 and 2500 And we're going to have more than 1,000 people in this cohort. It's just wild. That is pretty wild, man. It's unbelievable, honestly. <laughs> I guess you kind of made me think about like you're like the next generation of uh, thought leaders. Hope so. <laughs> What's on your mind before we start asking you a bunch of questions? Oh, gosh. I mean, I kind of feel like I have this secret, which is this: there's a skill called knowledge management that people either don't know about or they think is this dry, boring, kind of pointless exercise. And it's actually really important and everyone needs to know about it and do it in, in really the same way that like personal productivity before like gtd and david allen was like productivity that's for factories i feel like today people think knowledge management is for like big companies or for schools or something and it's sort of been like it's like devolved down to the individual level that's kind of my message that's what i'm i'm talking about in all these these calls is just the importance of knowledge management <laughs> 
Yeah, because as you say it, one, it sounds so boring. So how did you make it sexy enough that a thousand people want to learn this from you? I think it's the frame of a second brain. That was really the the key framing was it, the course is called Building a Second Brain, which when you hear that and you're a nerd, you can't not want to know more. <laughs> it's absolute nerd bait, right? So it, it filters really well. Second brain, I've always wanted a second brain. I've thought about that for years. My brain is so full. Give me that. And everyone else is like, please don't tell me more. <laughs> Do you think that sometimes it, it's too nerd baity? And it's like, sometimes I think it's almost too much playing. Like people get so consumed with the like productivity porn that I'm like, did you do anything? Like, no, 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 but it's all organized. Like Notion is one of those examples where the team that I, I get to work with, who was amazing. They love Notion. And I'm like, I just find Google Docs much easier to use. And like, sometimes I just want to write it down on pen and paper. I know. I know, man. This, this is my constant, my constant like battle is I attract super hyper organizers. And if anything, I then am on the opposite side of the spectrum trying to get them to be more in action to share what they've collected and gathered in their in their notes to like take more risks it's i'm almost like pushing them in the other direction funny enough but yeah there's definitely that it's like a perfectionistic impulse it's the over organizing over optimization over fitting impulse that people i mean definitely fall fall prey to for sure that's one reason we do it socially like i had this course self-paced it was like any other course, you log on and you watch all these videos. But like, I really started to see that, like almost anything else, the mindset shift was key. And the mindset shift was actually that organizing is just one mode of operating that is only appropriate in very particular situations. You know, like, for one stage in a project, it's not something that should be done all the time, perfectly 100%. And so now we deliver the course completely live, the whole thing is, is delivered via zoom calls. It's like the how-to content is now like 30% and 70% is the mindset shifts. Is there any activities or exercises that you've noticed where people have been like, wow, like, oh, that something just happened right there? Yeah, there's a number of them. We've tested a bunch and, and the ones that are still in the course are the ones that are like that. Maybe people's favorite is called your 12 favorite problems. And it comes from a quote by Richard Feynman where he said, you know, I think the interviewer asked him, how are you a genius? How do you be a genius? And he said, it's easy. You just have 12 problems always on your mind, your favorite problems. And then anything you see or read or hear about, you just ask, does this apply to any of my 12 favorite problems? And usually they won't. But when they do, you'll point it out and people will say, how did you make that incredible connection? <laughs> He's like, it's easy. I just had a 12. I think what this speaks to is like, there's a fear among this kind of person, like knowledge hoarders, that they're endlessly diverging right? That they're not actually finishing anything. They're not actually delivering and shipping anything. They feel like they're constantly going off on intellectual rabbit trails. And they have a, like a real fear that they're never going to end up anywhere. And so we have them come up with these 12 favorite problems, which are, are basically what are the recurring questions that you're always trying to solve? One of ours for our company is how do you maintain a standard of excellence while still being a company that ships early and ships often? Right. It's this like, it's this open ended question that doesn't really have an answer, but it generates creativity and generates answers. And so we have people generate in just 15 minutes their 12 favorite problems, their 12 favorite questions. And it blows their mind because they see, Oh, I do have consistent interests. I do have a set of questions that I'm always going after and I'm not endlessly kind of going out into the weeds. And so it's sort of reassuring. <laughs> do you have a, any person, like what's one of your 12 or for your personal? Yeah, I do. I, I share them in the course. Um, 
So a couple others are, um, how can I say yes to offers of help more often? Um, how can I spend 75, at least 75% of my time doing work that inherently gives me joy? Um, how can I make vulnerability a part of every day? How can we build rapport and trust among a distributed asynchronous team? That kind of question. And then how do you apply this? Is it just these questions that you're constantly thinking about? So that's part of it. But what I, how I have people use this is this is your filter for what to save. So often people have the filter, oh, this is interesting. If your filter is, oh, this, this is interesting or this could be interesting, then you, it's not strict enough of a filter. You, you start saving everything. And that's the person that they're just, how do I save all these tweets, all these Facebook posts? Every article I read has to be saved, every bookmark. And it starts to become this all consuming obsession. Uh, and so I have people just have this list as a kind of filter, like what I'm reading this article on content marketing. Can you just directly apply it to one of these problems? Like that concreteness and practicality just makes you a better reader. You know, you, you have some end in mind rather than just collecting these gold coins of good ideas. <laughs> What's like the worst person you've seen? I was hoping for some horror story like, oh, there's Judy in Ohio. <laughs> She's a librarian. She can't stop collecting the knowledge. <laughs> That's great. I don't think I can name any names, although there are some. <laughs> no, no, don't name names. I'm just curious to see. Like, I think it's there's like, there's collecting information that you might use and then there's collecting information. Like, there's many different facets of it. I, I think part of it is like, are you just collecting information to have like dinner talk? You know, like, oh, I need to be able to cite this one thing if I ever, you know, it ever comes up. Yeah. People do some wild things, man. Wild, wild things. There's people who have every notebook they've ever written in since they were six years old. And um, what happens in that case a lot of times is they're on this just obsession to digitize it, right? And they've tried half a dozen different digitalization, digitization methods. And um, of course, none is perfect. You, you never can have perfect searchability, perfect fidelity, perfect resolution. And so like it can get to the point, it's almost hard to believe, but people's entire professional life can grind to a halt, you know, especially if they're, they're like an academic or a writer or they're responsible for creating. If they don't, they don't feel confident in that like knowledge base, that knowledge collection, they'll often completely derail, say, the book they're working on or whatever it is to try to fix that. How did you find this calling? And then how did you realize you could actually make money doing it? Because I, I would imagine, I was trying to think, like, do people be like, yeah, I'm really good at organizing. And then I want to teach people how to organize knowledge. And then how do and then I can make that a business. I, I think there's a lot of people out there thinking the same thing or wondering how they can do that themselves. Yeah, I mean, online courses has been my bread and butter. When I, I quit my consulting job in mid-2013, and I just said, let me um, take a month or two off before I get my next job. And actually, I couldn't get an interview anywhere, including at Evernote which is now the app that I teach on, you know, in, in tech, I just, I was too, too much of a generalist. I had no, no kind of specialist experience. And so I just thought, well, let me try to launch one little project. If I can make $1 on an online course, I'll be happy. And it just ended up that first course is called get stuff done like a boss. It's basically teaching GTD. I basically ripped off David Allen. I was too naive to know you're not supposed to just like take a best selling book and just make a course out of it. Luckily, I didn't get in too much trouble for that. It was a huge success, I think, because that was peak GTD when everyone had heard about it in this world. But for there's a certain subset of people that don't learn from books and need videos. So I just got the exact same content and made it into videos. And that course just blew up. It was taken by like 20,000 people spread across a few different platforms. 
And then actually building a second brain came out of GTD. Because what, what happens with GTD? The people that like it, they come out and say, okay, now I need a method for all the other kinds of information, right? I figured out my to-do list. Now how about my notes and my files and documents and bookmarks and doodles and drawings and images and like a thousand different kinds. And that's the problem I tried to solve with building a second brain. How did the 20,000 people find you? Because I think there's a lot of people out there that it's cooking or creating and making in different ways, especially our audience. But getting that, those, that first dollar is always one of the most interesting ones. So I'm curious how, how you were able to do that. It was this, this insane combination, a confluence of events. And I've noticed a lot of online entrepreneurs have a, a sort of a big coincidence like this early in their careers, like a lucky break. So maybe it's not as unpredictable as, as we think. But it was just like a combination of the, the existing popularity of GTD. So people already knew of it. I didn't have to introduce the idea. It was Skillshare, which was the first platform really taking off around that time. And then it was the fact that I, I was the only productivity course on a website for designers, right? So just picture the situation. Designers sign up for Skillshare. They have a class on Illustrator and Photoshop and, and crafts and lettering and all these things. But then they think, wait, before I, I, I don't have the self-discipline or I'm not organized to take these courses because they're designers, they're creatives. Let me just take this one productivity course to get organized first. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, Skillshare even ran ads on my course. Because they found that when people took the productivity course, they were much more successful and were longer term customers for their other courses. That's beautiful. I also like the idea of like, how do you help their platform succeed by, and by them helping you? And sometimes it's like, oh, I wish that was more intentional. But I, I like that. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I think about is like, you're playing in your own field. You weren't trying to compete in the Udemy kind of like Kmart bin of courses. Well, that came later, though. <laughs> because I didn't think I was but the problem with all these sites like Udemy, even Skillshare is, is the discounting, right? Like 90% off next week, 95% off, 99% off. So a couple of years later, I moved to Teachable because I needed to own that. I needed to own the pricing. I needed the email addresses. I had to own the whole business. And that's was the next level up is when I just controlled all that. And that's what allowed us to start chart. Like you can't really charge more than the typical 30, 50 bucks on those platforms because it's so outside the norm. Right. To get into the hundreds and then the thousands, you have to create your own school, your own storefront that then you have all the branding and the testimonials and all that kind of stuff. I always found it fascinating, especially, you know, working out at AppSumo that the different amounts that we're willing to pay for things. Right. So people are like a book. If it's more than like $20, they're like, what? And then you have like a digital course on, you know, one of these sites. You're like $50. Okay. Yeah. And then you have like your stuff where it's like $1,500. And then you have college, which is $50,000. I find the, like, the scale or proportionality of it always kind of fascinating. I know. I'm continuously amazed by this, this topic. The psychology of it is so strange. We just had a, had a different course we launched a couple months ago that was $5,000. And the customer service was by far the easiest I've ever done. There was the least amount of steps to the sales process, the least amount of ob objections. It sold out. We had 50 spots and it sold out in two weeks. And we were just like, this was the easiest course launch we've ever done. And that's been a big motivation to just keep adding value, but then also in sync with that kind of adding or increasing the price. How did you get people excited to spend that much money? It's like this full spectrum content marketing we do. My business partner, David Perel and I, you know, our 100% job is creating content and having interviews and creating podcasts and putting out videos. We're just 24-7 doing that stuff. I mean, you, you know all this stuff, like you just create a world. You create a culture. People always tell me, once I, I find out about Second Brain, I hear it just everywhere. It's 
within this little niche community, it's it's ubiquitous because it just connects to you know to content, to information, to productivity, to knowledge, to learning. The whole domain of nerd topics has note taking as a sort of like meta layer that you just can't ignore, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of nerds in the world. Like, I don't know if we ever really need to go beyond nerds. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting about finding your calling and experimenting with things that you were already naturally doing. I think two things that I was curious about, do you think because you branded something like Second Brain that helped you become more successful? Oh, yeah. It's been absolutely pivotal. Pivotal. I mean, we just, um, I signed a book deal for the, the Building a Second Brain book a few months ago with a US publisher. And it's like, without that framing, they wouldn't even have read the proposal. You know, you know how publishers are like, you need the hook, you need the big billboard version that turns heads. As you heard earlier, like all the terminology, personal knowledge management, information management tools. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I just fell asleep for a sec. (laughs) (laughs) I'm awake now. Well, yeah, I like that. I think in general, as people are trying to create brands, it's like you need to have something to brand besides just yourself. Like people know sometimes I talk about coffee challenge and things like that. I like the second brain. One thing that you said I want to highlight too is that I like how you leverage platforms to build your business. I think sometimes we all like just go out to the open market and we're like, oh, hopefully someone will find me randomly on the internet. But you're like, well, where are there people that I could potentially just put myself in the stream of? One thing with that being said, I'm trying to think of a different way to say it, but like I think imposter syndrome is always fascinating of a topic where people don't feel like the privilege or the ability to teach, or be an expert? I I guess, how have you thought about that? Yeah, you know, I think I was lucky that I I spent most of my 20s teaching, most of it overseas. I I studied abroad in Brazil at the end of college, and then I taught English in Brazil. And then I moved to Colombia for my first job and worked in microfinance, and also taught English. Actually, it was always English, but I went to the Peace Corps, served in the Peace Corps in Ukraine. This was just before coming to San Francisco and getting that consulting job. So I sort of was in different countries teaching English. So I was able to refine my teaching ability and communication and speaking abilities, sort of using someone else's content. So by the time I came up with my own content, I had at least the teaching part kind of down. Any suggestions or advice on how to teach more effectively? That's something I've always been like wanting more. I've wanted courses or books or events on. I feel like there's actually not that much about how to teach. Yeah, I have a good tip for this. Um, Teach kids really teach kids. So in, in Ukraine, I worked at a tiny little Ukrainian school in like the far, far Eastern remote reaches of the country. And um, I had third graders. I had actually third through 11th grade, but it was really teaching the third and fourth and fifth graders that I really had to change how I taught. Everything had to be a game, right? There, I mean, there's not only the fact that they're third graders, but there was a language barrier. They were speaking Russian, I'm speaking English. And so I had to come up with a thousand games like simulations role plays dress up you know call and response draw a picture do like cosplaying basically like all these crazy things and then when i came so i learned all that and then i came to san francisco to start my career and i was like okay now i gotta be all professional and i realized adults are just the same we just are not honest about it we're just big kids we want to be entertained a hundred percent of the time (laughs) And if if you don't have the kids' experience, I mean, just like think of your university professors just standing in front of a room and droning on for an hour. That's what qualifies as teaching. That's not teaching. That's just, that's lecturing. And what I love, you know, I did corporate training for a while, actually. So it's funny. I did online courses 
but didn't charge enough. And I kind of failed to make enough money to survive. And so I moved from online courses to corporate training, which was profitable, but soul destroying. And so then I came back to online courses, but with this, this kind of new perspective of how I could charge more. And what I love about working with directly with consumers, it's harder, right? With the company, you just have to sell one person and they buy 50 seats and then you're finished. I love how demanding consumers are. The second they're not being entertained, they're out the door. Even if they've already bought the course, you have to sell them each lesson, right? In lesson one, you, you pitch them and sell them on taking lesson two. That way, all the way through the whole course. <laughs> if someone wanted to follow the Tiago path of taking, you know, that you knew how to teach, that you had an organizational framework that you started creating yourself. I was thinking about my doc, my brother's a doctor or Michael, who's a producer, video editor, dancer, rapper extraordinaire. How would you approach it in different verticals or different sectors to creating kind of online material or, you know, building up that type of uh, side hustles or main hustle? Yeah, you know, I think the big shift that's happened is the premium revolution, you know, that people are now maybe not used to, but it's known that there are courses that are thousands of dollars. There's an, quite a number of them these days. That's just kind of new in the past few years. So I feel like that opens up an opportunity where at that higher price point, you can completely change the framing of all in course from this mass market, lowest common denominator volume play to essentially super high end consulting. You know, it's, it's really funny. Like how much do you expect to pay a consultant or a coach? Oh, you know, hundred or hundreds of dollars per hour. What if you just did that, but with a scaffolding of an online course sort of behind you that you use to say, have pre-work, right? Like coaching and consulting, you know, it's going to be so much more effective if the client does some work beforehand, right? And after you basically riff off of the online course curriculum and you reference it as your sort of static lessons, but have the layer of high-touch consulting or coaching. And if you do that, you can charge whatever you want. I guess, how would you think like Michael is a video editor or my brother's a doctor, like how, you know, and other people out there that have interests, like how would you approach it? Yeah, so so for video editing, I'd, I'd find five friends and say, it's, it's such a revealing question. What would you pay me to teach you, right? So it's the question I, I ask people to ask their friends. It's not going to be what you think. It's probably not going to be a skill as traditionally defined. Ooh, I kind of want to find out. <laughs> keep going, keep going. Yeah, I find that, that there's sort of like a reputation that people have for being very good at something that people in their network will know about. It's going to be this, this weird intersection of skills and interests that you never really considered, especially because you're an expert, you're blind to it, expert blindness, right? And that intersection is what's going to give you the scope to actually make it feasible. Course on video editing would be way too. Imagine all the topics you'd have to cover, right? But video editing for X in Y situation, and then the follow-up question is: Will you pay me a thousand dollars for that? <laughs> or even better, what would how would it work if I were to charge this thing you just told me that you want me to teach you? Let's say I needed to charge a thousand dollars or pick a number. How would it work? Have them tell you, and maybe they'll say, you know, okay, half-hour call every two days for two weeks, or. You could propose some, you know, a two hour call every two weeks for six months. You're going to find some structure that works. You know, I, I published a, a post called how it all started. Actually, it's kind of funny. It was a very nerdy niche blog post called tagging is broken. And I just sat down, had no planning and just wrote this rant, this angry rant at tax. I just hate tax. 
in all situations, in all scenarios. And it took off. It was like the this article of the day on Medium. And I was like, whoa, this really resonated. So then everyone came back and said, okay, well, tags suck. What is the solution? How should we organize our notes? And I came back with just one article called uh, How to Use Evernote for Your Creative Workflow, which was like, here's what I proposed. Evernote saw that, asked if, uh, here's the platform thing again. They asked if they could republish it on their blog. And it took off again with all the Evernote community coming around it because it was such, it was a completely different framing of what notes were for. Everyone thinks digital notes is just little scribbles. I was saying, no, 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 no. Evernote or any other digital notes app can be a lifelong machine of continuously like intaking information, churning through the data and spitting out insights on a continuous basis for years. And people were just like, the team at Evernote hadn't even thought of that. They were like, excuse me, like what? <laughs> and now we've moved on to different apps. Now there's Notion, there's Rome, there's a, a, like the category has really exploded from like basically Evernote to many others. But I think I was early in that sense, which was nice. I like that question. I thought that was really strong. Like, what would you pay for me to teach you? And then would you pay me $1,000? And then how would you like me to deliver it? That was a really nice three-step process for anyone out there in, in all facets if they want to be a teacher. But you could probably apply that for consulting or for software creation or, or in a lot of different businesses. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we just created the three-step framework for developing your thought leadership. <laughs> well, I think to be a thought leader, you know, I think you, you've, I don't know if it was accidentally followed a traditional path, which was copy and then iterate, right? Take GTD, get something out there, get it going. And from there, you're like, well, actually, there's things that are wrong with it or things that I think can be improved. And here's where I'm going to start taking it. And then that's where you start building your own type of uh, leadership of thought. That's exactly what it is. Imitate, copy, curate, signal boost, you know, be of service. There's people out there that have amazing ideas that just don't have the time to distribute them or can't, you know, promote them in just the way you can. Give them a hand and you're going to, you know, just get to know them, get to know their community, get to know the ins and outs of what they do. And then you're perfectly positioned to do your own thing. I mean, do you almost feel judged all the time because you're the knowledge thought leader or you're the knowledge organizer uh, guy? <laughs> what do you think people describe you as? Like, oh, it's Tiago. He's the... I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. The second brain guy, the note taking guy. I do get some hate mail. It's oddly triggering for people, the subject of organizing. I think it speaks to like a lot of FOMO about, you know, missing out on certain information. There's some people who just hate online courses, just assume as soon as they hear that term, it must be a scam. It must be a pyramid scheme, whatever. Uh, some people hate the, the idea of productivity. They're like, I don't want to be controlled. I'm too creative. I'm too, I'm too spontaneous for that. And then they, for some reason, feel the need to write me about their feelings. <laughs> Why do they take the time to write you about that? And I guess I was then thinking, how do they organize their thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, well, I used a note-taking system to organize the hate mail that I'm sending to all these different people. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. It does take diligence. You really got to be you know your stuff for that. Well, one of the things that I experienced yesterday, I was hanging out with Jeremy, one of the guys on our team, and we went to a magic show. And it was like a pre-run, I guess that's what they call it in entertainment, like a, a trial run practice. And I think that, you know, it makes sense for courses in all businesses, like go try it out, see what the response is, see what people like. And as we've done monthly1k.com in our courses, it's been interesting. And then at the end of it, they're like, hey, give us feedback. And I, I think it was it really dawned on me in that moment. It's so easy to criticize, but it's so hard to create. It's so easy for me to come and be like, I don't like this, change that, do that. But to actually create something is tough. 
it's tough. So I think we always kind of have to, I, I do my best to always just respect and appreciate the creator part versus like the, the criticizing angle. Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people in this world, if you're collecting knowledge and taking notes, they either consciously or subconsciously have that desire to create. You know, they want to publish their paper. They want to um, give a TED talk. They want to start a blog, all these things. They just want to do it the right way and they want to do all the steps and they want to have all the systems in place. And so it's actually kind of been surprising to me what a community of creators it's been. You know, we're a community of organizers and knowledge managers and all these things, but there's been a real, real flourishing of, of new blogs, podcasts, online courses and different things. I think once they have those mindset shifts, like away from perfectionism, away from scarcity, away from having it all figured out, then suddenly they realize, you know, this is sort of the funny thing with, with the second brain is it directly counteracts the feeling of scarcity. Right. When you have your information in a hundred different places, you can entertain the illusion that I don't know enough. I don't have enough. I'm not there. But once you just start putting it in one place, very quickly, people have hundreds or thousands of notes. You can no longer say, Oh, I don't know much. I don't have much to offer. There's not much here because you just see it and it's just a huge repository. That's another one of those magic moments that people go, Oh, what if I like wrote a blog post on these thousand notes that I have rather than adding one more note? <laughs> That's something I want to commend you on. I like your approach with it. Like I do book reports and I used to just put out the notes and it, it looked, honestly, I would read them and I was like, this makes no sense to anyone. It barely makes sense to me, but it was helpful for me to like reinforce the knowledge. And then in the past years, I really try to make it like digestible for myself. And I think that's something I saw you talking about that I, I really resonate with is instead of just consuming everything, just think about how you can consume and then reproduce it publicly. And then that'll help you internalize it better. As well, you know, for in any facet can help you grow an audience. Uh, and even if it's not trying to be a business, it'll help you connect with interesting people. Yeah. Did you see my my ultimate guide to summarizing books? Is that what you meant? I did. I did. Yeah, I just love it. I love it. Those 14 books that I've summarized, I can speak as if I wrote the, maybe not I wrote the book, but like it gets embedded <laughs> on you on such a level in a way that no other book does. Like I, I kind of want to just read far fewer books and the ones I do pick, like deeply absorb them into my being and talk about them and publish on them and just like make a whole thing out of it, you know? Well, that's one thing with your course that I like is that I created a course or our team did monthly1k.com. And I was like, I don't know how we can keep improving it. But I think you actually are like, you just keep improving it. And you improve like how you're teaching it, you improve like the different methods. And some of the stuff is fundamental. But I like that you guys have done the course updates over the past 11 years. And I think for a lot of us to become crafts, men and women, uh, it is refinement. And I, I think that's something I'm getting a lot stronger at with our videos and with, you know, the courses and things like that. One thing that I was talking with Michael earlier, our course is $7 now. It used to be 600 uh, And it's the steps that we've taken to build AppSumo and other businesses and helped a lot of people do it. But I, I wanted to make it accessible, especially during coronavirus. So we lowered it to $7. And we actually give people their money back when they make the seven. And so I have wondered... Should we make it more expensive because then people will value it more? I know we try to make it free and then people didn't do anything with it. I guess, how have you thought about that? Yeah, man, this has been such a journey. It's such a journey because all my background is in like nonprofits and philanthropy and teaching, which is all about altruism and giving and serving and sacrificing. Uh, I remember back in 2013 when I was starting my, my business, reading your content, watching your videos, like a lot of it. I don't think I, I've mentioned that, but and just like looking, oh, an online business. Whoa, online marketing like i really had no idea what i was doing but you know 
I've sold from zero to $5,000 at probably one or two dozen price points in between those two points. And I just see when someone, the more that, I mean, it's just the classic principle, the more they pay, the far more likely they are to finish, to get value from it, to really follow through, to tell their friends. It's like every part of the flywheel gets better. And I think part of it too is like, I think you have to decide at some point if you're going to be sort of more towards wholesale or more towards retail. Are you going to be like the the wholesale idea, you know, merchant, or are you going to be the storefront Starbucks that is on, you know, two street corners on the same intersection? There's only so much of that spectrum that you can really occupy. Like, I'll just give an example. My business partner was one of my students. He was the standout star student. He took my course. He was 23, completely changed his life. He's created an enormous audience that is now bigger than mine, completely using these principles. Um, he created a course that we collaborated on called Rite of Passage, which is a writing course, right? And now, Dave, his name is David, is my number one marketing channel. Like more people find me through him than any other single channel. And I don't think that would have happened if the course had been a cheap, self-paced course. It needed to change him. He had to go in one person and come out the other end a different human being. I tell my team, we're not allowed to use the word simple and easy. Because our courses are not simple, they're not easy, they're hard, they're intensive, they're long, they're confronting. And that automatically filters for someone that wants that kind of transformational experience. I like that. I like that you cut those words out. Tell me more a little bit about head versus heart with the things you're teaching. Yeah, man. Yeah, I published an ebook a few months ago called The Heart is the Bottleneck. It's basically my journey of personal growth from so intellectualizing, over-intellectualizing everything. And being completely in my head, completely like thinking that just I could figure everything out logically to really in the Bay Area, which is the Mecca of this, doing Vipassana retreats and coaching and Landmark and LSD and going to Burning Man, like just the usual, you know, Bay Area curriculum. (laughs) Uh, And just realizing that no problem in my life or really nothing I wanted to change was a matter of the head. None of it was a matter of logic. It was the heart. And that's where that that title came from. How has that shifted some of the work you've been doing? I think that's something I've been reflecting on. And I appreciate you talking about pricing. That you know, there's, there, It's interesting with people are like, talk about pricing and talk about the analytical stuff. But then it's also, I think lately with what we're you know trying to help, the, we call our people the underdogs and help them be successful in business. I think I've tried to be listening more about what's really calling me and what's inspiring me versus, all right, let me make a video showing you how to do like some advanced marketing thing, which I, I don't know, just doesn't call me versus yesterday we spent, many, many hours working on one video and redoing it many times about dopamine and, and distractions. But finally, it was like, ah, this feels right. So I think this, this listening to the calling and, and going after, I'm curious to your experience so far. It's a number of different things. It's your intuition. You know, when, when a decision comes up, you can make the pro con list and analytically analyze it. But the biggest decisions in life are essentially intuitive. It's just the heart says yes, no, want, don't want, right, left, up, down. It's like, just a very straightforward answer, but you need the awareness to just hear what the, your, your intuition is telling you. Um, it has to do with interpersonal stuff. You know, like I, I couldn't build a team. There were some really fundamental issues I had to just get over for myself before I was comfortable being in a position of authority, before I was comfortable telling people what to do, before I was comfortable, um, being responsible for someone's livelihood. You know, there were some kind of, internal narratives and stories and wounds that I just had to heal, had to move past before I could 
really make it more than a solopreneur thing and make it into a business. I mean, I'm happy to get into any of this stuff. I don't know how deep it's quite a rabbit hole it can become, as, as you probably know, but I'm, I'm happy to get into it more. I'd be curious what narrative or story you change, because I think as an audience and a listener at times, it's helpful to relate, but also know that other people have gone through similar things and maybe ways that they've gone, you know, gone through it as well, or how they've gone through it. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about a recent one, which is kind of one of the more f- kind of out there things, which is anger work. You get angry? I get so angry. <laughs> <laughs> you seem calm as dude. You're like, you feel like you're like, all you do is drink tea and meditate. I feel like I'd see That's you as a 15 dentist. Minutes before this call, I was going. <laughs> huh, what happened 15 minutes before the call? So I learned this in a, in a, uh, a week-long workshop called Groundbreakers. I think anger work is going to be one of the next great personal growth trends. It's really incredible. I have a tennis racket over here in the bedroom and I have gloves. You should, should wear gloves because you'll be surprised how, how much damage it does to your hands. And you just hit stuff and you scream and you yell. And you just like say f- you to every person in your life who you're angry at or annoyed at or who hurt you or offended you. It's the most therapeutic thing ever. There's some context to this. There's real teaching. It's not just hit stuff, which I think is important to, to say here. And it took a week long workshop for me to really like get how it works and how to do it in a way that's because there's a way you can do it that's reinforcing the story. You know, like you did this to me and kind of reinforces the victimization. But what anger work is all about is this idea that emotions are just bodily functions. They're like bowel movements. Okay. Anger is like a bowel movement. It just arrives as a natural process. You can try to hold it. You can try to repress it, but it's just going to get stuck. It's going to get more and more painful and it's going to start to find its way out in all sorts of dysfunctional ways. Passive aggression, depression, anxiety, difficulty sleeping. So you do it in a way that you are just, it's just like your, it's kind of like exercise or like going to the bathroom. You're just getting it out. None of the stories that you're getting mad about are real. That's the key point, right? So I'm just like, F you to the neighbor because you like cut some of our hedges and like getting mad at some person online who called me some name and just like anything that comes to mind. And they're there in your mind somewhere, even though you don't like, this is the big thing Noah. is you think you're not angry. When they introduced this exercise in the workshop, I literally raised my hand and said, I'm not angry. I'm certain that I have no anger in me. And they're like, just go through the motions. They had a big, this big futon. There were people standing on both sides of me and in front of me. And I just start whacking this futon with a tennis racket. And I feel so dumb. Like this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. And then after a couple minutes, it's like, I have a post on my blog. I, I describe this in great detail, but it's like a volcano. It's like a volcano that's been dormant for a hundred years, starting to erupt. And the rage that came out of me from years of just denying it, not feeling it, not expressing it was just so potent. And the feeling after is like the greatest high. You feel so powerful, so empowered that you can do anything. And it's, it's honestly led to huge breakthroughs in the business, like direct as a direct consequence. Han, that that was a big jump right there. And you still haven't. So from hitting the futon to making millions of dollars, that was like a big jump. (laughs) So if I go hit my futon, I get rich is what you're telling me. Uh, Michael, let's go buy some rackets. Uh, Where's that connection? Um, And then what what happened before this call that that bothered you? Because I I guess I'm relating to you is that I've been feeling lonely and a little more empty. And I I think I, I do really appreciate when you say like, hey, that's a bodily function. And it's my body 
telling me something and whether I think sometimes I'm resisting it so much, which keeps it there longer. Uh, cause for some reason I want to like, like have the victimization or the pity party as my friend calls it versus the power party. Yeah. That's how it works. So let's use a great example for, and one for me too, which is helplessness. Capable people, entrepreneurs, leaders, CEOs, uh, you know, the kind of people in your audience really, really resist the feeling of helplessness because we define our identity in terms of our capability. And so one of the things we did in this workshop and, and the leader, his name is Joe Hudson, who I now work with. He now teaches a course on this on our platform. So we're in the process of everything I'm describing. We've turned into an online course because like I said, I think it's one of the next great movements. So they resist it. They resist the feeling of helplessness in every part of their life. No, don't need any help. I'm never going to feel weak, never going to feel needy. I'm never going to feel like I need anything from anyone. And what does that lead to? That isolation. Because everyone around you goes, oh, well, I guess Tiago just doesn't need anyone for anything. And so it's a, it's completely self-reinforcing because the more you push people away because you don't need their help, the more you feel alone, the more you have to do it by yourself. And so, so Joe's work, he's an executive coach. A big part of his work is helping executives and he works with like top, you know, CEOs and stuff to just feel helplessness, to really feel in the body what that feels like. And what happens, and this is, I'm going to tell you, this is mysterious. I don't completely understand it. But when I got in touch with that feeling of helplessness, people started showing up to help. There was something that shifted in my environment where suddenly, I mean, our team has, we hired our first employee January 1st of this year. And now we have 10 people on our team. It was like the bottleneck was me and I just needed to unbottleneck myself and the business just took off. It's not the object of it that's so important. It's that every emotion is present throughout all of life. Like every emotion has a function. Every emotion has a purpose. Every emotion is designed to give you access to a certain kind of power, even helplessness. And so it's not so much like even anger. It doesn't matter what you get angry about. People put on um, hard rock music or metal music just so they, they can just feel angry or they'll watch a video of, of someone bullying someone and they'll just get angry at that. It doesn't matter. It's like acting. This is essentially role playing just to, like I said, get the energy, get the th- that tension through your body. That's all it is. Thank you for sharing that. What, what, um, what happened before this call? I just tend to do it before calls now. Just gets rid of the anxiety oh, and the, the nervousness. Hold on, you get angry before the call to reduce anxiety? Oh, yeah. It's the best anxiety reducer ever. Because anxiety is holding back. Like, you could almost conceive of that's what anxiety is. It's just the, the trembling and the shaking of anxiety is that there's something wanting to come through that you're holding back on. You have the, the lid on the kettle. If you just let it out, then there's nothing to be anxious about. It's so funny that we got from digital note-taking and organizing to anger work. <laughs> no, it was a pretty logical, uh, it was logical. <laughs> well, I think there's the, the superficial, right. And the highest of levels, like I need money to feel good and all these things. And then it's like, well, what do I want to work on? And then how do I work on myself? And then that all kind of like, you know, some circle of life kind of thing, uh, where it is all very connected. Yeah, I, I think it, it absolutely is. You as the founder are the bottleneck of your business. I like the way that Sahil, the founder of Gumroad put it on Twitter recently. He said, entrepreneurship is good for personal growth because if you don't grow, your business will die. It's like you, you as the leader have to keep growing or else it stagnates. That's been my experience at least. What personal growth are you working on right now for yourself? It's really the, the online course that we've created. I'm a part, it's the first cohort and I'm a participant is the primary one. Around the anger? 
So it's, it's about all the emotions. It's about all everything. It's, um, so Joe is leading us. It's an eight week program. Uh, we meet a few times a week. There's solo work, partner work, small group work, and then the whole group. So multiple kind of levels and it's a series of distinctions. So for example, um, one of them actually this week is empowerment over power. So what Joe is doing is getting the, his work from coaching executives. He, he found the eight most common sort of misconceptions. What are the, just the, the confusions or the lack of distinction between one thing and the other? And he's just spending an entire week clarifying what that distinction is. Um, so like empowerment and power, they, at first glance, they're like, that's kind of the same thing, right? But they're very different. Power can be taken away from you. Empowerment cannot is what it comes down to. And he talks about like, you know, a lot of people gather power, money, influence, leadership, because they going back to helplessness, they don't want to feel helpless. They want to feel in control and powerful. But he's what he's found in his work is that often billionaires and CEOs and whatever, and, and, you know, presidents will be the, that insecurity is not, doesn't go away because all that power and money they've accumulated can be taken away at any time. Whereas empowerment is generated internally. It's not about your external circumstances. And so we just kind of go through during the week, all the little subtleties of that. And people talk about their narratives from their childhood where they felt disempowered. And we, it's sort of like, I think of our course, in fact, all of our courses as like accelerated applied therapy. We're basically changing people's narrative, but we're doing it in a way that has some external notes or writing or productivity. So, so that you have proof that you changed. Cause that's the problem with a lot of personal growth things. It's like, I'm pretty sure I had a transformational experience, but it could just be in my head. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, if, cause you can't quantify, you can quantify money or email list, but internal growth, it's like, we're, there's not like a barometer. Uh, and then sometimes lately I'm like, I'm like, am I regressing? Right. Like I'm like, haven't I, I thought I took the course. I thought I took the thing and I'm, I moved ahead and it's like, well, you have, but you're still on that path. It's not the end. It's just the beginning of the next journey of it. And, you know, you take steps back, but it's like, all right, I, I think I'm going in the right direction at least. Yeah, that's called, um, it's a super useful concept. It's called pendulation. Growth is not a, a straight line. It's like a pendulum. Like if you think of a, of a baby, a baby doesn't learn to walk one day and then never crawl again. They take two steps and they fall down. And then they take five steps. It's this constant back and forth, back and forth. And this is useful because often it's just what you said. We see one, you know, we take some course, we go to Tony Robbins, whatever. And then we see one little evidence. Oh, I'm backsliding. I lost it. I lost the magic. <laughs> but something did change. It's, yes. just, it's just not, it's not A to B. It's this pendulation thing. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I think sometimes I, I was uh, bicycling yesterday and we got to the top, top of the hill. We're doing gravel biking out in LA. And at top of the hill, I was like, I was like, man, I'm so happy. We finished it. We got to the top. He's like, dude, this is the beginning of the ride. <laughs> he was like, this is the beginning of the next hill is coming. And then I just thought about life. I was like, that's so true for life. Like a lot of times we're like, oh, I just want to get to the hill. I should get to the top. And you get to the hill and you're like, I'm here. And it's like, okay, you're still alive. You gotta, you're still probably going to keep going. And then there's, there is other hills to, uh, to adventure and explore. So true. Yeah. A lot of times, I think a lot for a lot of us, we're like, I've done all the things I want to do. And I know that's how I felt at times. And I think that's a time to revisit the things we've done and maybe there are things we want to do. For yourself, I guess one thing I'm curious over the 11 years of being in, involved in this, and it sounds like more seriously in the past uh, was it eight years, what have you stopped or changed? Because I feel like, you know, especially if you're an educator and teacher like we are in different capacities, people are like, oh, this is the expert. But then sometimes it's like, well, over time, like our productivity levels change or our, our organization changes. So I'm curious how that's been for you. 
Totally. So, so actually those 11 versions are just over the past three years. Building a second brain is only three years old. And the company as a whole is, is about seven years old. We do in the beginning several versions a year and now it's like two. So we iterate twice per year. But, um, I think building a team has been the biggest one, which I'm very much in the midst of. It's such a mindset change. It's, it's so the opposite. It's like, I finally did the solo printer thing. I finally could make a living. I finally, you know, was, was sustainable and profitable and just sane as a solo printer after six years. And then suddenly as a manager, everything that served me there, I have to just go to the opposite. I mean, I'm sure you went through this transition at some point, but you have to suddenly not know the answer, right? Not always just tell the team what to do, but go, yeah, that's a good problem. What do you think? And just constantly be pushing back the solution. Whereas a solo printer, I had to constantly be taking the solutions. So, so let's, um, let me try to think of a concrete example. Uh, Notion. Let's come back to Notion. I love the idea. I think it's beautifully designed. I love the team. I did a collaboration, a, a series of speaking events with them. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But what we've settled on is I use Evernote, digital notes app for my personal stuff and Notion is the team. Because it, it requires all this little maintenance and these views and this really detailed work that I just don't want anything to do with, like you were saying. And so I'm purposefully ignorant of Notion because then I can't take responsibility for anything in there. It's like I'm, I have to purposefully handicap myself. Otherwise, I'll go in there and I'll just start organizing everything. No, anything to do with the team, with Notion, I depend on my personal assistant, on our course manager, on someone else. And it's worked really beautifully, really, really well. One of the things I've been wondering is like, how do you balance with all the productivity porn these days, right? Here's how to do this life hack, or I don't have to work at all. And here's this new software. And I think as I've gotten older, I want to stay fresh. And I find, you know, I think it's very easy to say like, this is how I've done Google Docs forever. So I only use Google Docs uh, or Microsoft Word or typewriters. And, you know, I've had to be open-minded. Like I met Ali Abdal, meaning you, and I get like, oh, maybe I should try these out. But I, I think figuring out which ones to integrate and which ones to exclude is, is almost like that could be a whole t- job or time consuming in and of itself. Yeah, the productivity porn thing is, is, it's wild to me. It's incredible. There's like a whole industry that just regurgitates the same tips year after year after year. But then there are people that are innovating and doing interesting stuff. I think so. One, one approach to this I like is to be late. Even though this is my field, I like to be the last person to the party. I like to be the last one to adopt a tool when it's it's fully mature, it's stable, nothing else is changing. In fact, I kind of like to adopt a tool when it's already on its decline because then no one's going to acquire it. It's not going to shut down. It's not going to suddenly change overnight. You know, I, I was one of the last kind of content creators to get onto Evernote. And I kind of want to wait until Notion is just like really boring, mature, plateaued, not sexy, not cool, and then I'll come onto it. <laughs> And I guess what makes me comfortable doing that is I just really don't believe the tool is ever the bottleneck. I really can't believe that. No person is at the top of their game because they have some fancy tool. In fact, my, my experience with experts and everyone that I admire is that they're, they have this mindset of it's kind of like they want to be as boring and mundane in as many parts of their life and work as they can so that in their one idea or frontier that they're innovating on, they can just be wild and crazy and just go for it. My dad is an artist. I grew up around a lot of artists. Some of the most out there avant-garde artists have the same routine every day. It's just boring, eat the same meals, wear the same clothes because all of their creativity is reserved for that one outlet. Dude, I love that. 
you know, as we talked about head versus heart with some of this stuff, how do you listen to yourself better? And I, you know, it's funny, as I say that out loud, it's like, well, you just listen. <laughs> but I think we, you know, a lot of us struggle with that. Yeah, you know, the, the core method that we teach in this course I've been talking about is called view. And it's a listening method. It's funny, you know, you need a process for listening and a method. For, it's a four part framework for listening. But it does help to just practice what we do and what we teach is have people listen through different lenses. So view stands for vulnerability, impartiality, empathy, and wonder. They're just basically these four frames that in the midst of a conversation I can take on. So we can kind of do a little experiment. Like if we're talking and I'm, and I get bored, which happens all the time in, in conversations, there's just a moment that you just like disengage. You're just like, I'm over this, but you can't just like turn around and, and walk away. So you just sort of check out mentally. It's really interesting. We can do this experiment. Your, your listeners can do this experiment. Yeah, let's do it. Just try these four. Try to just be like a couple minutes, be in the frame of vulnerability. How can I listen vulnerably? Which the first time you hear it is, no, you can speak vulnerably. You can't listen vulnerably, but you really can. And then try impartiality, and then which is the hardest for me. We can talk more about that. But empathy, wonder. You just can sort of go through them in a cycle. And what I've really found is, when a conversation is dead, when it's just lacking aliveness, one of those four is missing. And if I, I can just add it in. Can you give an example? Yeah. So, so the best example for me is impartiality. When I started purposefully being impartial. So what that means is, so maybe this is specific to like problem solvers and like productivity people or entrepreneurs or whatever, but we constantly think we can solve everyone's problems. As soon as someone is opening their mouth, our brain is is starting to take, oh, that happened to me years ago. I figured out the solution. I'm going to tell you the solution and you should do the solution, right? It's just like, it's just running in the background. And that kills, it kills conversations or at least it kills the aliveness because it makes you stop listening. As soon as you know the answer to the problem, you stop listening. Like, oh, the details don't matter. I already, I already got to the end. I already solved this equation. It makes them stop listening because they can tell right? You can just tell when you're speaking to someone who's thinking in their mind, get to the point, get over it. We already know the solution. I know better than you. I know more than you. I'm smarter than you. It's just the whole thing falls apart. And so I've just started to be like, like impartial, just tell myself, I don't know the answer. Even if I think I know the answer, mm. this is a problem that has never existed in the history of the world. And that instantly puts me into this, the other letter wonder where I suddenly go, whoa, it's like a space of possibilities rather than like an answer to get to, you know? Yeah, I love that. It also kind of made me think about the emotional stuff that we were talking about earlier, where instead of fighting these different things, just kind of like, it's kind of almost like childlike, where you just see the bubbles and you're just like, oh, let me just play with these bubbles, not try to grab them, not try to do anything with them, just kind of like being a little bit more open-minded. I know, I know I've had a, you know, as you were talking, you know, I, I was like, oh yeah, I had a conversation last week with a guy, like everything I said, he's like, yeah, I, I know that. I agree with that. I was like, I don't know what we're doing here. Yeah. What's the point of this, this conversation? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, uh, that's some interesting stuff. You know, a lot of, uh, of what we're talking about, you know, it's, it's a lot of self stuff, but it's also organization. I did also start realizing that there's a really big difference between organizing knowledge and productivity. Like that's actually a kind of a pretty distinguishing thing. Like we can organize these thoughts. Like maybe someone listens to this episode and they're like, wow, there's all these different topics and it triggered this for me. And that's kind of knowledge management or organization or knowledge management. But then productivity is kind of a separate world almost. It's so different. It's the opposite in many ways. So part of what I do is I go into productivity communities because those are the existing ones. 
you know, whatever the podcasts, the blogs, the community forums. And then I'm sort of like a, like a sleeper agent because, or like inception, because I, I need to go in with, I need to, I need to sort of work in the frame that knowledge management is just an extension of productivity. It's just notes. But then I sort of try to shift that to actually it's the opposite. And usually at that point, if they're interested in that, they come over to my community where we have that perspective. But it, it is this weird thing that we lump them together. I agree. Where do you think that each person that's listening today can go do something to improve their their knowledge management or productivity? They could do like right now while listening. I like how you framed it as something they could do instead of something they could consume. <laughs> I mean, what I would say is take out a digital notes app, whatever's on your phone, Apple Notes, Android Notes, if you have a specialized one. You know, it's, it's kind of wild that every mobile device on the planet pretty much has a notes app pre-installed, right? It's there. We have it. It's just a matter of using it and write down every thought you have for one day. I would change that. Not in every thought, every idea, like useful, interesting idea, every crackpot theory, every insight you're on the street, you notice, oh, people need tend to leave those lime scooters at, at this certain kind of location every little observation like that is an insight or a potential insight i think that the the real first breakthrough is just to see how much is in there because until you start writing you think oh do i have any ideas no i don't seem to so what would i write it's just like the anger thing you start making the movements or right, in this case like this and just see what all is in there and then you have it objectively in a place outside your head and you can just, it's just the, like the awareness of how much is in there, how valuable it is, how it could potentially help you or others. I kind of feel like that's the minimum kind of the minimum action you could take to start getting that, that ball rolling. I like it. One thing that um, I do also like, I just want to highlight, I think I was talking to my buddy yesterday and he's like, I like when you highlight things that they said that you enjoyed so that I can remember it. And I like that what I've noticed about high achievers or people that I admire is that they're still learning and they're still hiring coaches, they're still reading the books, they're still improving. Whereas I think there's, it's kind of like the mountain. I think people think, oh, you're at the top of the mountain, it's over. But they're like, no, the only reason I got to the mountain is because I worked my ass up to get here. And I did these things that I'm still doing today. Whereas I think sometimes I get the mindset where I'm like, oh, once you've done it, you can stop. And so I think it's finding things that you never want to stop. So I commend uh, that you're doing that. With this notes piece, which I find fascinating for myself is sometimes it is hard for me to let them go. I, I just, some of the notes, like in my, in my iCloud notes, I'm like, oh man, I don't know. Maybe I'll want this in the future. But then part of me is like, ah, oh, I want less junk or le not junk, but less like less things. It's kind of a weird, like letting go of the, the digital information. I know. So <laughs> yeah, totally. My solution to that is to never delete anything, but have a massive archive. So let's say in my Evernote account, I have maybe six or 7,000 notes. I think 4,000 of them are in the archive. They're in cold storage. Mm. So they still come up in searches. They still can be linked and linked to and from other notes. They're still there. So it's funny. This is the whole first unit of my course is this organizational system called Para, which if someone really wants to, to like start doing this, I have a fr completely free post on my blog, which is how to organize your entire life, your entire digital life using the four categories of Para. I really like four letter acronyms. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it's all about that. It's basically organizing knowledge in the most simple way. You have your projects, the stuff that is active, relevant, and timely, and you have everything else. So organize all of your notes in such a way that you're focusing most of your attention on your projects and basically ignoring everything else until you need it. That's the principle. 
That sounded a lot simpler because like guys on the team brought me para and then they started spending hours on notion. And I was like, is this really helping us? <laughs> Cause I think there's, it feels like it's helping, but it's something, you know, sometimes to build a building, you have to dig a foundation and, and it, that takes a lot of time before you actually do the building part. I like the archive idea. I just, I created an archive on my notes thing. I was like, I'm going to start moving it out. Cause then it, it is nice to just have the stuff that matters right now. What, what is your, like holistic productivity setup today look like for people curious, aka me. Like the the apps, you mean? Just a, a, in general, like a, a week in in the life of your knowledge and productivity. Yeah, I have a stack, uh, and in fact, this is another thing. I people come in thinking I need the one app to rule them all. That will be my second brain. That will save me. It's never going to be one app. It's a stack. Everyone has a productivity stack, a knowledge stack. It's Evernote for me for personal notes, Notion for collective knowledge, collective notes. I use an app called Things for um, for my task management, for my to-do list. Definitely still follow the GTD method. And then there's sort of apps on the periphery like Instapaper for all my reading. Um, let's see, what else? Not that many, actually. There's maybe just five or six that are the core of it, but they all have their job, right? They all have their function yeah. and they all interrelate. And I, I depend on them tremendously. Yeah, how does that knowledge management work with your wife like so in the past with my i guess my exes i always have an evernote file of them which i actually found surprisingly helpful like what books do they like like what gifts should i get them in the future where do they like to go what are they you know what are different insights i've actually thought it was a jinx for everyone i've ever done it hasn't worked out but i still like it maybe we should have more evernote files of different people but i guess i was just thinking in, at, a, at a high level like how does knowledge management and productivity uh, fit into your relationship or not uh we do it really differently lauren is very you know, I, I discovered the heart is the bottleneck. She, that's her home base. She's, you know, she's Latina. She's the embodied, spiritual, intuitive, grounded, all those things very, very naturally. And so her systems are probably more messy, more about matching what she's working on and, and looking at with her moods, like just what she feels like. But she's kind of starting to become a thought leader in her own right. She published a, a post on my blog recently called Feminine Energy, What Productivity is Missing. And she went into this whole like framework for like masculine versus feminine productivity and how you can approach any task from either of those sides. Um, she's done a few videos on my YouTube channel. She's sort of like my, um, my foil. When we do talks together, I do my talk and then she comes in and goes, well, I'm really lazy and I don't want to do all that stuff. So here's what I do. And then she's the crowd pleaser. The crowd, they think they come for me. But really, they love her approach because she's really just kind of, I think, down to earth and more practical than I am. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting you chose to have a partner like that. Oh, lucky, lucky that I do because we, we just balance each other so well. So, so, so well. Do you guys record a lot of your conversations or document them? No, we never have. Yeah. Someone this week was like, hey, man, your next podcast, you should do a first date. The first date is a podcast interview. Whoa. <laughs> I just think that sounded wild. I was like, that's an interesting idea. Um, it, it, yeah, mate selection, uh, it's a whole nother. I mean, there's many podcasts about that, many books and, and courses and things of like that. As we're wrapping some of this stuff up, uh, one of the things Michael and I were, were talking about is like dads. I think, you know, dads motivate us. And I know you made a, a movie about your dad. I think dads motivate us to prove them. And I'm sure there's, you know, evolutionary things there. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, totally. This has been amazing. And and people can see the, it's a, just a, a video on YouTube now. It's 46 minutes long. This was the wildest thing. I just got a new iPhone and saw the camera a couple of years ago. And I just realized 
I have a multimedia studio in this camera, in this phone. I have everything I need here to make a film. And I started seeing, uh, you know, made on iPhone film, like longer films on YouTube and stuff. So actually the, the impetus was, um, my dad had a 30 year retrospective of his art, which is like a once, once in a lifetime event. Right? This gallery in, in Hollywood said, we're going to get 30 years of your paintings and we're going to put them on, on Melrose. Like really cool situation, really beautiful area with, with just a lot of interesting things to shoot. And so at first it was just, oh, let me film this art opening. Let me just film the art exhibition. It was definitely a runaway project. And then once I had, you know, a couple hours of footage, I thought, well, let me just interview my dad and add that footage. Let me interview now some people who are visiting the exhibition, get their take. And it just snowballed it from there until by the time it finished, we had filmed in four different countries. <laughs> wow. And it's all on an iPhone. 100% the phone. It's funny. I even bought some accessories because I was like, oh, you can't do everything in the phone. So I had a gimbal and I had a few other things. But as time went on, I dropped them all with one exception, the mic. That's the one thing, having a little lapel mic right here to not get the ambient noise that you can't do with the phone. Because I, you know what I realized is the spontaneity is, is the most important thing. I would be in situations where some amazing conversation would be happening. You know, my, my dad is there with his high school teacher. My dad's 70. This teacher is 92, right? And the conversation is happening. And I'm thinking in my mind, oh, I'm not going to film this because I don't have my setup. I don't have the lights and the mic and everything set up. And then at some point, I was just like, oh my gosh, no, I need to just film everything I can because no moment repeats itself. And so over time, I, I just dropped them all. And I don't think we've, we've really come to terms with this idea that there are things happening every day, conversations with our parents, with our spouse, with our kids, moments on the street with our neighbors that are passing forever. And we have a professional quality film camera in our pocket. I guess we are taking photos and videos, but there's a level above the little five second clips, which is just edit them into something a little more cohesive. And you suddenly have an incredible film that your grandkids could watch. You know, our grandkids are not going to be watching five second clips of us, you know, of our breakfast, I don't think. I think we have to do a little bit more work to just elevate it into something kind of more substantial. That's my, my perspective. <laughs> that was really beautiful. Thank you. And I'm checking out, uh, I did pull it up in the back. It's Wayne Laxenforte on my way to me documentary on YouTube. That's just really interesting. Cause I, I think one of the things I've talked about the friend is how much knowledge our family has that we may never access again. Like I'll never get to talk to my dad again. I'll never get to hear my grandmother's stories again. And my kids, God willing, like they'll never hear that. And so it is a really interesting chance to get the spontaneity. It don't, you know, it's funny that the documentary almost parallels a lot of your work. Where it's like, all right, how do I document something? And not just document it, but how do I turn it into a digestible thing that I can internalize? And then the, the final chapter or final part of the three-step Tiago process is share it publicly. <laughs> so it's like digest, process, publicize. This film project is a case study in the course. There's no way that I could have made a documentary film while running a business without my second brain. Like every little detail about that film, every little detail is in my notes. It's all stored there so that like the cognitive load is completely out of my brain and not here. Otherwise, you know, people take a year or two to make like full time to make films. It had to be 100% in the little in between moments of life or on the weekend or in the evening when I didn't have my, my main work. So yeah, man, I, I appreciate that. It's been incredibly meaningful and I want more people to do it. I want to teach a At some point, I'm going to teach a workshop for how to make personal documentaries, amateur documentaries, because it's just so incredibly rewarding. Oh, I love that idea. I think that's really interesting. So this lapel mic, it connects wirelessly to your iPhone? How does that work? 
Uh, it doesn't really need to connect. You just sync it afterwards. So it's a lapel mic that costs maybe 50 bucks. I use one from Rode, R-O-D-E. And then it connects to the H1N Zoom, which is a little microphone the size that the person just keeps in their pocket. I'm going to nerd out for just a second. What's the resolution you're actually videoing this in on the camera? Because it looks just so smooth. That's the insane thing. So first, this, that's an iPhone 10. That was before the 11 came out with all the big multi-cameras. Oh, wow. So was it like 4K, 60p? I could have done 4K, but no place that I was going to show it online really could even display that. So I stuck with 1080 just to save space. And then I, I did 20, I think 24 frames per second because it has the more cinematic feel. Originally, I wanted to, I wanted to premiere in a movie theater. I wanted to rent a movie theater in LA, invite our whole family and display it like a film. But then COVID happened. So uh, I just stuck with the traditional 1080p, 24 frames per second. It was, it was totally fine. What was your dad's response? He was like almost skeptical the whole, almost the whole time. You know, your kids want to make a project. Okay, let's just entertain you, patronize you. But then halfway through, after about six months, he saw the vision. And he saw I was going to finish it. He saw I was going to stay committed. And then he got so into it. My dad and I have talked more over the past year at a deeper level as I've made this film than ever before, just with the project as an excuse. Like he'd call me late at night, like, oh, I was just thinking maybe this part of the film, you do this instead of this. My dad never just randomly calls me. You know, uh, I would do interviews with his childhood friends from high school and learn entire stories of when he was a teenager that I never knew. It was really like a research project about my dad and also one that helped me understand myself super well with the film as a sort of a a side effect. I guess one final question is that from the video you asked her what you want to be remembered for, I guess the, let's leave it with that. What, what do you want to be remembered for? I think it's really just helping people actually do all of the grand things that they want to do. Actually converting those fanciful dreams into just achievements. Putting it into reality and having it be something you're proud of in retrospect instead of something you regret. Thank you for sharing. You definitely uh, energized my day. I appreciate you coming and talking with us. Maybe I'll, I'll see, you for, uh, see you a little bit later. Okay, sounds good. See you guys. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode. If you did, go give Tiago some love at buildasecondbrain.com if you want to learn more about his course and his Medium blog at Praxis Labs. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go teach a course together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. Also remember to check out my newsletter at sendfox.com slash Noah. I send out exclusive, amazingly juicy stuff for your business journey at sendfox.com slash Noah. And if you do not have your own newsletter, starting a newsletter, number one, sendfox.com, and number two, start a YouTube channel. Seriously, the best businesses that you could be starting today. Finally, special shout out to my amazing team and my slurpiness. Thank you, Jason at podcasttech.com for everything he does on these episodes because he has to do a lot of work, people. Trust me. Thank you to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen from the Dork Team for all that you do. And final shout out to Dusty Lambert, who handles launch operations at Absolute. Way to be flexible, my man, literally and figuratively. Have a fantastic day. What's your favorite non-alcoholic drink? <laughs>